2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food.
3: We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
1: Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Dara Bresnitz. Big shout out to everyone who came out to Snacky Tunes Salon, our first live event in a few years. Hosted at Chow Now here in LA, we're going to have a few more events In the near future, so please stay tuned. And thank you to everyone who signed up for the newsletter. More issues to come out in the next few weeks. We sit down with our friend Niels Bernstein, whose new book, The Joy of Oysters, is now out on Artisan. It is a fantastic read full of oyster pop culture, recipes, their environmental impact. And he shares his favorite tunes when he's shucking and hosting an oyster party. Then we dive deep into the archives for Finnish songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Pepina. She shares a live in-studio performance with us, including her song, Moments. It's a really great chat and a really good time. One note in our conversation about oysters, I say astral works instead of astral weeks. I apologize, Mr. Morrison. We love the album, no less. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy snacky tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
3: It's not that easy to be one of us But speaking up seems so dangerous Shut the mouth Keep your body fighting through the
1: Congratulations, thank you for joining us on Snacky Tunes, we were actually talking the day after the book came out, how does it feel? The book is out, I'm holding it, you're touching it, we work so much in this digital <laughs> landscape, but I'm I'm flipping through the pages and it's it's such a beauty to behold.
4: It's really beautiful, I mean I'm really thankful to Artisan that they made it beautiful without mm-hmm, any input mm-hmm. for me in that regard. Uh, but, you know, having worked in music so long where there's also Tuesday release dates, it really feels like yeah, I finally am getting my own record release, you know? No, it's, it's great, Um,
1: especially now since so many albums don't even get a physical release. <laughs> <Right. You> gotta, <laughs> exactly. This is something you can really turn around town. You can, like, leave this on the table and be like, what am I reading? Oh, yeah. this,
4: this is my book. This is my book. And I will say that, like... You know, I saw the layouts for so long, so I thought it was kind of anticlimactic when I actually received it in hand, but not at all. I mean, I feel really giddy when I can actually browse through it and hold it.
1: Yeah, there's something about like flipping through instead of scrolling through that really brings it to life. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, I mean, listen, I've been a fan of oysters, I think, maybe since I've, I don't know, I mean I've been belling up to the bar at Maison Premier for a decade plus <laughs> yeah. and they've always been in my life but I feel like they've really made their way back into the mainstream over the last few years even those who may have found it squeamish have now found it mm-hmm. this accoutrement to a uh, sunset sipping champagne and having a dozen oysters or something like that. Yeah. What do you think's attributed to that return and what made oysters go out of fashion in the first place?
4: It's a really good question. I think a lot of it is the um, the proliferation of oyster farming and mm. the improvement in oyster farming. So it's quite easy to get really good quality oysters, um, where it used to be a little bit more of a crapshoot. Um, so you can go to a you know a neighborhood place, even mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. city. And get really good quality oysters that have been recently harvested, stored really well. Sure, sure. And that wasn't always the case. It was, it wasn't dangerous to order them before, but it was, uh, it was dangerous in the sense that you didn't really know what the quality was going to be, both in size and taste, the way that they were. Mm-hmm. There's maybe a bit more, you know, the food revolution or whatever you want to call it. There's yeah, of course. More pride in. Uh, making sure that the product's really great, but also in how it's presented. You know, I rarely get bits of shell in my oysters anymore at restaurants. And I used to all the time.
1: Yeah. I used to be picking those out uh, after a slurp and it did not, especially for those who didn't see it as something easy or something that was a little bit maybe unknown Mm -hmm. because it could be intimidating at times to say oysters, but a lot of places as well would just say
4: we have oysters do you want a dozen and people go great. And they don't even ask. Yeah. They don't even ask. Which is good and bad. I think, you know, I think you, you mentioned Maison Premier, you can go there and it's very trustworthy. You don't have to think Mm -hmm. twice. Of course, you're going to order oysters there. They really, you know, pay a lot of attention and care about what they do, but you know, oysters depending on, you know, where they get them or whatever can be lucrative for a restaurant. So, So many places have them, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're storing them well, serving them well, sourcing them well. So it it is important that just because they're so easy to find, it's still important to really, uh, you know, get to know the place. Maybe order a few before you order two dozen. Yeah, yeah. Sure that you're getting a really good oyster.
1: I mean, look, I was just back in the suburbs of Philadelphia and we were at this nice sushi place and they listed two oysters one was East coast oyster and one was West coast oyster. There was no specification right. of what it was, but you go like, all right, it's a sushi spot. I'll, I'll trust, I'll trust that the quality is there.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, you know, it's funny because I, I think, you know, there might be a place that, that gets, you know, jars of shocked oysters because mm-hmm. they have fried oysters or something on their menu, which is totally fine. But then there's, Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah. But, um, but then they're like, oh, darn, you know, people want an oyster hand roll. They want an oyster. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, let's just, you know, try to make it happen with what we have. And you're looking at, you know, it's not doesn't always work out perfectly.
1: No. Now, writing a book on oysters makes me think that you have your own personal story and relationship with oysters and, you know, Bourdain famously had that eating the oyster in France as a young kid that Mm -hmm. you could say that story is responsible for probably a lot of stories about oysters in the world. Um, do you have your own, was there a turning point in your career where you're like, I'm going to dedicate a whole book and a few years to this (laughs) one subject?
4: Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of my kind of revelatory experience with oysters, I don't remember anything, you know? and like, <laughs> They were just always there. Specific events, yeah. you know, not just about oysters. I just don't remember anything. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in Seattle where they were quite mm-hmm. prevalent. Mm-hmm. And we, more importantly, we, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and we were really into food. So we were interested in things that we could obtain for free. Mm. So, the beautiful yellow Italian plum trees around town. Sure. The Himalayan blackberries that grow on the side of the road in Seattle. And it meant going a little bit out of town and getting, digging for clams and, and grabbing oysters. So it was really a, I think I had a, maybe it's just Norwegian blood. I think I had a, a taste for seafood from a really, really young age. Sure. The salinity in your veins. I think so. Even, you know, really stronger fish, I always really liked as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I never, it wasn't like, oh my God, what a, you know, bizarre thing that I either was blown away by or had to take a liking to. I just kind of liked it. I, I lumped it in with squid and scallops and clam mm-hmm, and, okay, you know, mm-hmm. and everything else that we were eating. But, you know, the initial appeal was that it was just incredible to me that they, you know, they took years to come to maturity and you could just pluck them off rocks in low tide. It just seemed like magic. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit of magic and that magic is
1: sort of peeked into in the book because you get into the growing cycle and and Mm -hmm. how it all comes to be from seed, because it is a seed, to plate in many ways. And I think what really surprised me about the book was that it is an almanac in some ways. It really is this, it's got pop culture, it's got recipes, it's got stories, it's got myth busting and things like that. But it's all focused around the oyster, which, you know, in pitching a book, sometimes when you go out and say, hey, I have this singular subject, (laughs) you're hanging your hat on it. And it's great because you took it in a a lot of different tangents, but still you got to like an oyster to like this book, at least from like, I'm going to buy this and
4: publish this. How was that process in it, the pitching? I think for me, I, I really like single subject books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they're, they're a fun way to just play around and and go deep, and but also going broad. You know, there's just like okay, if I'm going to do oysters, let's do everything sure. about oysters. Um, and uh, and I noticed that a lot of the oyster books on the market, they're really good. Yeah, Um, but they're very, they can be kind of micro. There's the Kurlansky book, the big oyster about the Mm -hmm. oyster influence in New York, which is an unbelievable book, like all of Mm -hmm. him, but it's, you know, it's very specific. It's this, you know, it's a, it's a historical tale of the importance of oysters in history. And there's a lot that go really deep into, uh, specific farms. There's ones that are just recipe based. There's, I just kind of wanted to do one that was more. Playful and that whatever your level of oyster interest or oyster knowledge, you could just kind of open to the middle and find something interesting or fun, mm. or inspiring or whatever. So I think, uh, I mean, I can't speak for the publisher, but, I, <laughs> I, um, you know, I think it was kind of that spirit of it's kind of a coffee table book. It's kind of a cookbook. Yes. Yeah. If, if you're going to buy one book on oysters or bring it to a party or something. It's a very, you can't, it's not uh, out of reach of somebody. Anybody that has the faintest interest in oysters will find a lot to, to like, I guess.
1: I I think one of the things I liked so much was how much pop culture and other parts of history that you brought into it, mm-hmm. where the oyster was the inspiration for something. And even in opening up the book, you have this Eleanor, Clark quote, if you don't love life, you can't enjoy an oyster. Yeah. There's other quotes. It made me realize, you know, Shakespeare, Tom Robbins, Oscar yep. Wilde. I was like, oh, wow. Oysters are really throughout history. But why start the book with that quote? And how much do you believe the fact that if you don't like an oyster, because again, like it is very subjective. You're like, it, you can't enjoy life.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, oysters are alive Mm -hmm. when you eat them there's something very sensual about them whether it's the way they look the way they feel the way they taste the situation you're in when you're eating them um and there's you know they as much as people like to talk about that they used to be a food for the poor when they were very you know prevalent in the 1800s they've always been a food for the rich as well they've always had this connotation of luxury so I think it's this kind of like a pre, when you like oysters, you're appreciating the sensuality, the mm-hmm. light, the 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 power, the you know, the strength and the flavor. You're not looking for something tasteless. And um I don't know, it's like a food you can connect with in a way that you don't connect mm-hmm. with a parrot, maybe. So uh, I would I would tend to agree with that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, you have I believe it's in the book and it's this there's famous or similar famous um, photos of the oyster cart and Lower East Side mm-hmm. and turn of the century. And while I've been lucky enough to sit in some very gilded rooms, sipping martinis and oysters, obviously this doesn't exist anymore. But God, would I love to be getting off the subway mm-hmm. and seeing an oyster cart guy and go,
4: you know what? I'll do half a dozen on the way home. Yeah, you know the 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 Chinese takeout container.
1: So I had no idea. I had no idea.
4: Detail. And yeah. it's just because it was folded paper and it was a way to, like you say, when you were just like, ooh, give me a scoop of oysters out of that barrel. It was a very <laughs> cheap, convenient way to bring them home.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like with the hot summer days in New York, a hot scoop <laughs> of oysters hot on hot the cart, maybe maybe the health department isn't passing it these days. But, man, yeah. that would be nice.
4: That would be nice well, to to pick up. Yeah, and they're you know they're reasonably resilient. You know you can yes, you yes. want to you know stop off for too long of a round of drinks on the way home with your scoop of oysters on a hot day, but you know you can you can make your way home with them. Uh, yeah. I think you know from what I could glean to really oversimplify it is that there was a whole lot of oysters and the rich people got the best oysters, sure, and the other people got fine oysters fine oysters but hey
1: we've all had fine oysters and they're still exactly. pretty good oysters it's Like, uh, yeah we're gonna have a quick musical break and then we come back i want to talk a little bit about the recipes um and a little bit of the music that you like to play while shucking oysters and hosting a party okay, perfect we have a song from the archives here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network
5: Time ain't right I just want to believe you're worth the fight But I gotta take my time Before I walk in blind Cause everybody's telling me to watch out Even I can see there will be falling out. Cause it fell in my mind
1: Back to Snacky Tunes. We are chatting with Nils Bernstein, author of The Joy of Oysters, out on Artisan this week. And we were talking about the prevalence of oysters in America and around the world at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people don't understand is the environmental impact that this had on purifying the water. Mm-hmm. And you look at things now like the Billion Oyster Shell Project, which is trying mm-hmm. to reseed Different coastal areas in America and around the world, and while it's a known fact about how they purify water and things like that, it actually is pretty prevalent in your book to talk about how these really fit to the ecosystem. Why
4: include that point of view in your book? I think the the you know it's it's topical, I guess you know talking sure. about the environmental sure. impact on our foodways. But with oysters, it's like you know there's virtually no wild oysters left that are commercially. Available, You know, there might be some places where they have, you're allowed to harvest within limits if you're lucky enough to find one. But basically, 99% of wild oyster stocks have been decimated. So mm. not only is, you know, there's a lot of negative information and false information out there about aqua farming. But whatever you think about fish and shellfish farming, oyster farming is a net positive, however, yeah. you look at it. So it's really, for me, it was to you know, reiterate that point that it, it, oysters from an oyster farm are not, they're, they're most likely going to be much better quality than if you were to find a wild oyster and they're doing incredible work because oysters are, you know, we, we need billions and billions and billions more of them. So mm. the more oyster farms, the better within reason based on, on land uh, leases and whatnot. Sure. But, um, you know, all of that's pretty tightly controlled. So, you know, I think it's, you know, oyster farmers are doing really, really, really important work. And they also happen to be making incredible oysters of really reliable quality. So I think that that environmental aspect of it is really to help promote the idea that farmed oysters are not only good, they're they're important. You know, it's almost a, it's like a. Moral imperative to eat oysters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel that every time I'm I'm sucking back a dozen, I'm doing God's work work in the green space. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I also picked up in the book and, you you know, you talk about wild versus farmed is how international oysters really are. Mm -hmm. And the majority of my oyster eating can be really say I had it in America and I've had it in France. But yeah. you go all over the world and yeah. I wanted to ask how many places did you get to visit and how many oysters do you think you put back during this research time? But also where was the most interesting and unique
4: and exciting place you found oysters? I think, you know, my oyster interest is a lifelong thing, so over mm-hmm. the the years I've, you know, been lucky enough to have oysters and visit oyster farms in a lot of places but i would say a few places where i was not really well maybe a little surprised to see how how deeply oysters were connected to the the food and the culture mm. was um in ireland wow yeah not uh, not in my mind at all huge oyster and in fact french people hate this but <laughs> A good amount of the oysters in France are Irish oysters that are finished in France. Mm. Um, but they originate, you know, they start their life in in Ireland.
1: And um, they, they get shipped to the salty waters.
4: Yeah, they last six months of their life to get sure. that, you know, get that... That, that tumbling. ...color. Yeah, yeah. The, the water. Yeah. But, um, but Ireland, the West Coast of Ireland is an incredibly good place to grow oysters. And it's funny in Ireland, when you talk about that people don't think of Ireland as a oyster eating place, they can't believe it, you know, to them, it's the most obvious thing in the world that they're an important oyster country. Um, and it, it really is. They have a million oyster festivals. You see them everywhere. You can, it's a great, great country for oysters. And also, um, Australia and New Zealand Mm -hmm. are really good for oysters and have these distinctive oysters, the Sydney rock oyster and the New Zealand rock oyster. Um, that are really delicious um, and, and a different species than what we get in the U S yeah. I was lucky enough to have
1: some of those at Depot in Auckland, which is this great oyster oh, yeah. restaurant uh, down there. And speaking of different places all over the world, getting into the recipes, that was really fun as well because it wasn't just, and don't get me wrong. I love oysters Rockefeller and, yeah. and was recently able to enjoy a few of those at Balthazar, but Seeing some Korean oyster fritters, some Filipino oyster uh, quinoa, some Mexican oyster cocktails. I didn't expect you to have this international recipe point of view, Uh, but it really is all tied
4: together through this one ingredient. Oh, I think so. I mean, Korea is a a major, major, um, both consumer and supplier of oysters. And again, it's another thing that maybe people don't associate with Korean cuisine, but I imagine that (laughs) korean people would be quite surprised that people don't associate oysters with korea because they're very very popular and it's a really important country for exporting oysters as well and china of course is i think china is the leading producer of oysters um and really all over well i mean you know all over the world really anywhere there's suitable you know cool, conditions. brackish water you know you can someone is is growing oysters um And yeah, I don't know, I'd say, you know, part of, with the recipes, part of it is things that I, my developing recipes based on things that I had eaten, Mm. some of them were just kind of invented out of my own, what I thought, you know, trial and error with what I thought would work. Did you come across Oyster Mayo or did you create Oyster Mayo? I heard about it. (laughs) Can you explain what it is? So... Oysters can be used in place of eggs to emulsify homemade mayonnaise. Wild. It's wild. And in fact, it's, I, I found that also the case with regular mayo, if you do it like in a Vitamix or something that's too fast mm. it can break it. Yeah. Um, so doing it by hand is kind of a hassle, but you want to do it in a food processor or a regular blender on low speed. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, fr- I tested it and the, I had to, work out the ratios for ideal flavor. But the first time I made it, it just worked. It came together and I couldn't, it was like my heart was racing. I couldn't believe how perfectly it worked. And then you tweak the flavor a little bit and you really have a beautifully rich, you know, they give you a similar richness to what eggs do. And of course it's oil. So, uh, and, uh, but then you get this oyster flavor that you can perk up with a little lemon juice and a little bit of the oyster liquor. And it's really, It's pretty amazing. I did it uh, with some friends in Maine. I just made – there was a great oyster farm on North Haven Island in Maine. And Chuck made some fried oysters dipped in oyster mayonnaise and just – There we go. There we go. It's like the snake eating its own tail in some way. (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
1: But it's been deep fried and emulsified. (laughs) Exactly. You know, uh, reading this book and hearing the recipes and the the oyster mayo and – summer's upon us and you dispel and, and get, you know, put to rest that our myth of not eating oysters during those months. It only made me think of, of throwing like parties and having dozens and dozens of oysters on the table. Yeah. Yeah. What do you have planned for your summer and for parties and, and set the scene a little what's on the soundtrack? How are you going to host people who are probably not going to come to you and
4: expect at all times that you're shucking? Right. Well, you know, if you're if you're cooking oysters or pickling oysters or something, you can shuck ahead of time, and they mm. even freeze quite well. I, yeah, so I read mean, that. I, I I had no idea. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you know, there you you can even get them frozen in shell, and it works more or less. Um, yeah. But you know, if you're if you're you're frying, you're stewing, you're you're. I like pickling oysters to put out in a, at a party on like a creative kind of pickle plate. Hmm. Um, And so I'll often have for a party, I'll try to have some like oyster dishes that I can do ahead, maybe some oyster shooters. um, And, uh, and then just have a ton of oysters out of live oysters with a ton of knives and a ton of dish towels. And there's always people that want to give it a shot. There's either people that are really yeah. proud of how well they shuck oysters, people that believe they'll be really good at it or people that just want to give it a shot. So if you have a group of people shucking oysters with glasses of wine, it's super fun, it's fun to do, it's fun for people to watch, and you end up with a lot more oysters than you would if you were just if I was just doing it myself all afternoon. Yeah. I mean, I remember learning one hazy night at a
1: death and co supper club in Brooklyn. And once you learn it,
4: it's, it's one of the best skills to have of how to, to pop yeah. a shell. Yeah. It's a good feeling. And they go, you know, they go pretty fast. Like once you, yeah, once, once you have the oyster, anything you're doing with it is coming, whether you're eating it raw or cooking with it, it's coming together pretty fast. So, you know, if it's taking you a minute to, to get it open, no big deal because you're going to be eating it soon enough. And with multiple people shucking it works really well and also with oyster knives i find that different people prefer different oyster knives for whatever Mm -hmm. reason the way their hands are shaped or the way they like to get in the shell so you know if you put out an assortment of oyster knives it's not like one guy has the good knife and everybody else waiting for it generally you know people different people like different knives and it, it it works out but you so, you asked about soundtrack, too. Yeah, because I
1: feel like you probably have one soundtrack for shucking and prepping and then one soundtrack for the party, and knowing how deep your love of music goes, I'm, I'm sure they're tuned in quite perfectly.
4: It's it's funny you say that, because uh, I do have different... I mean, <laughs> it's not like I know ahead of time what the soundtrack yeah. is going to be, but for me, oysters, it's kind of like a nostalgic thing, and there's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. comfort, nostalgia thing to just kind of shucking oysters and playing with oysters alone. Um, and so I tend to put on things that are more nostalgic. I also tend to, uh, maybe be drinking wine while I'm shucking oysters because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you're standing for a while and, yeah. um, and generally when I'm drinking, the music gets a little more nostalgic as well. So it might go back to seventies. Um, mm. I mean, I don't know, like trying to think what I just recently shucked like 60 oysters in one. Session and uh I don't know, I was playing Cat Stevens. I was gonna say little little like Van Moore and Astral Works. Totally. I could see oysters, sipping wine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely put on uh you said Astral Works, that's good. Um and uh Mac. Sure. Might come on there. Um the chain to match what's uh, on your hand so you don't pierce it, right? Right, right, right. And uh um you know, Fairport Convention and Richard mm-hmm. Thompson. I've been known to put some of that on. Um, oh God, what else? Sometimes maybe some like you know, kind of eighties, kind of sad power indie, like My Bloody Valentine, Dinosaur Jr. Oh yeah, um, I always like a little
1: like Dave Brubeck as well when I'm when I'm in the you know just to. Pre-party, maybe like post oyster shucking, pre-party into the start of the
4: party. Yeah, I was gonna say that gets cocktail hour. That vibes. starts to get into cocktail hour. Yeah, sure. um, I like having uh, when I'm shucking and just cooking in general. I like having songs with a real like you know three or four minutes long because yeah. I kind of keep track of time that way. Um, but uh, but then yeah, then as people start to show up, and again, it's oysters. You want to keep it lively right you want to keep it fun, fun. you don't want people yeah. to, people get so stressed out and intimidated about oysters both shucking preparing even eating them That you want to keep it kind of fun and easy so um you know like brazilian pop mm. or, like, or brazilian like os mutantes or something a little a little weirder to keep people on their toes a little bit um 80s new wave
2: sure.
4: it's tricky you know you don't want to go to cornball but you know some some well thought out kind of early look, once synth. you see a dozen wine bottles
1: stacked up by the door then all bets are off and you can sort of just start letting the lyrics fly
4: well you definitely it's fun to like look back on your you know spotify or to look back at what you played at the end <laughs> of the party versus beginning yeah. of it and just see how how uh I don't know You're like
1: Oh Jay took over here
4: I yeah, get it Exactly A lot of Dell del yeah. and
1: B-sides Yeah it
4: gets, it gets a little more drunken A little more A little more emo Yeah somebody yeah. Gets on the dead Then someone has to
1: uh, Someone's got to take the dead off And then yeah. Strel's like No the dead stays on um, <laughs> The
4: dead stays on So uh, Listen
1: the One of the best parts of the book And and, and it was towards the end The one that actually Made me laugh at loud Was the Ten random paintings Featuring oysters <laughs> In it yeah. Um, and as a uh, lover of food, and look, the Norton Simon Museum over in Pasadena is doing a whole retrospective on on classics that feature food. It uh-huh. was fun to see oysters pop up in these different paintings. Yeah. Outside of having the same food theme, what sort of tied
4: these uh, artworks together? Uh, I mean, I think you know oysters are a metaphor for a lot of things. The pearl, mm. like, you know, generally pearls and general connections with sex and sensuality seem to be a common thread. So, um, you know, they, you see them a lot in still lives and I think they often represent feminine presence or feminine energy. Mm. Um, and, um, they also tend to show up in these feast photos of people just, you know, general, decadence where there's oyster shells on the floor and there's people you know jugs of wine and people falling over and you know these kind of feast scenes oysters tend to show up a lot because again they were a lot more prevalent and more inexpensive back then so they would have feasts where people are downing dozens upon dozens of oysters each so there's some i think there's some level of uh of metaphor, and there's also mm-hmm. some aspect of literalness that they just were a food that showed up at feasts. Yeah, we're being and depicted if in art. You're rich enough to have your portrait painted. You're probably having some
1: feasts featuring oysters. No question.
4: That it was funny. I went to the Met recently, and it was amazing how many different um, rooms and eras and exhibitions had oysters <laughs> worked into the artwork somehow.
1: Yeah, look, like I said, I felt the same way when I was reading the quotes. I was like, wow, oysters have really been with us all these years. Um, (laughs) Listen, congratulations. Joy of Oysters out now in Artisan. If people want to order the book, where can they go? And if they want to follow along on your adventures, where can they go?
4: Uh, Well, I guess Instagram is best for me. It's just my name, Nils Bernstein. Uh, The book is available everywhere. I I don't know uh, how better to (laughs) – My
1: favorite bookstore everywhere.
4: I like the idea of people buying it at physical bookstores, a physical yes. book. You buy it at a physical bookstore. Um, yes. I'm really looking forward to traveling around the U.S. and actually holding it in my hand and taking selfies with the book in bookstores. Um, yes. Do
1: you have any plans for a book tour coming up?
4: I do. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm going to do May 17th in Seattle. It's the first uh, event with Hama Hama Oysters and the chef them. Renee Erickson at Booklogger. Oh. I mean, um, could you get a better oyster chef to partner no, with? Incredible. No, it's good. Yeah. Uh, in June, we're doing, yeah, San Francisco, LA, uh, Santa Barbara, East Coast, uh, Boston, or Duxbury with Island Creek. Sure. Um, New York, eventually. Haven't planned it yet. Uh, I think Newport, maybe Mystic, DC, um, Maine. So, yeah, still in the process of working everything out, but some really, really, really fun stuff planned. Amazing. Well, I cannot thank you enough. Congratulations on this. Thank you f- so much. I'm such a Snacky
1: Tunes freak, so I oh, really thanks. appreciative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's uh, it, it's an absolute joy to have you on, and it was an absolute blast to read, and it's been a while since I've outright laughed in the best way possible. We <laughs> That's Facebook, amazing. So. Thank, thank you, you so, for that. so much. Um we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
2: with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Pepina. Hey.
1: Welcome to Snacky Tunes.
2: Thank you so much for
6: having me Happy release week. Yeah, thank you. It's very exciting.
1: We're going to get to that in a second. But first, you grew up in Helsinki. Yes, Helsinki, Finland. Trained as a classical... Flutist. Flutist. Yes. How long were you able to sustain that before you told your parents, i got (laughs) to change the instrument?
6: Um, They kind of knew. I started playing the flute when I was seven, but then I got my first piano when I was 10. And they really saw the difference of me playing contemporary music and me playing classical music. It was really, I was just playing to please my teacher when I played the flute. And when I played the piano, it was just for myself.
1: Very alive. Yeah, <laughs> were you were you a good student though?
6: I was, I was, I was a very good student, and my teacher was a very good teacher in a way that every time if I would learn something, we would just right away move into a new thing. Like I always felt like I never felt like I was a good flutist because we never stayed where I was comfortable. Mm. But that also meant that I learned really quickly and I got really good. But it also kind of took a lot of the joy away from it. So.
1: You so couldn't just comes. have a good week. You couldn't be like, oh, I crushed exactly. this. Yeah. I'm just going to play this for a week and then come in and, and like, nope, on to the next thing. It was your You're right an absolute away. failure all the time <laughs> at everything.
6: That's how I felt for like 10 years. And then on the very last year when I was um, more into like making music and I was kind of realizing that, hey, like maybe I could use flute in my music. And it was the first time that I looked at it differently. And I kind of realized that, wow, like. I'm a decent player, but I le- I realized it too late and I'm still not playing flute at my shows. One day I will, though. Really? It
1: hasn't it hasn't made it back.
6: <laughs> it hasn't made it back. I, I still I still hear my teacher's voice in the back of my head like there's only one way to play it and it's the right or the wrong way, you know, like and if it's anything in between, it's wrong.
1: Is that true about the flute? That there's only one way to play it?
6: No, it's not. There's no <laughs> one way to play any instrument, but it's just the world of classical music, you learn you have to learn how to recreate something that's already done. So in that way, yeah, there is only one way to recreate something. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to bring it back. One, one day. day. Yeah, one like day. A, like two EPs
1: from now, yes. it's going to be all flute, all flute. All flute. All flute. And you heard it here first. That's yes. a promise.
6: <laughs> it's a promise.
1: You moved over to piano. piano. When did you start writing songs for yourself?
6: Around that time. So, well, actually, there is proof that I was writing songs before that. My mom actually has this little tiny piece of paper from when I was six years old, and I wrote down, like, a melody. And I was like, Mom, I wrote a song. And she still has that little piece of paper. So it's been just always a part of what I do is creating melodies. But when I got my piano at the age of 10, it was suddenly not just melodies. It was harmonies. It was, like, this whole world that you could just create. And I would just... I wouldn't really learn how to play songs, I was just listening to what I was playing and basically just started writing instrumental music right away.
1: When did you feel that you, fo- you wrote your first good song?
6: Oh, I don't know about that. Good is such a relative term, because I actually do remember one of the first songs that I wrote. I think I was 11 or something, and it was just a really simple piano piece. And I still revisit it, I think that was a good song. That's
1: sp- one out the gate.,
6: well, it wasn't the first it- one, but it was definitely like one of the first, and it's I think it's all relative like if I would write that today, I would think that oh like it's boring, it's not complex enough, oh, it doesn't have these and this and that, but because I was eleven when I wrote it, like that was really good for an eleven year old. <laughs>
1: When did you start to develop the style that you consider what you're playing now? How many years did that that take?
6: Oh, well, I'm still in development, 100%. I hope that I'm going to keep on developing my style till the end. I would never want to find what I, that, oh, this is what I'm going to do now. Um, but this specific thing, I'm, I would say that it started... Um, when I first came to New York three years ago and I made my first EP and that was the first time I was really introduced to how the music industry really works like outside of your bedroom and how you know music outside of
1: Helsinki (laughs) exactly
6: and how like music is actually produced and what goes into it and you know how pop music is written like of course there there's no one way to write something but I just learned a lot and I think you know Ever since then, I've been just learning, 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 and I'm really excited about this new release, because it definitely is a step to the right direction. I just want to keep going to that direction. Can we hear a song? Yes, you can.
1: What are you going to play for us first?
6: We're going to play a song from the EP. Um, It's called Against the Grain.
3: that girl next door back then, she didn't know how to fit in, and everyone kept telling her, don't talk back, don't ask us why, just sit down quietly and smile, better to be seen than her. Is that what it means to be?
1: You've been dubbed the queen of Sundance.
6: <laughs> yes.
1: How does one Apparently. get that title?
6: Um, I don't know how official that <laughs> title is, but... I see you
1: brought your crown. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
6: No, I uh, i have performed there four times now. Um, I think that might add to it, just the quantity of performances. Um, it really, Sundance has played a big role in my whole career as a musician.
1: How did you get involved with them uh, it's not always so well known for music. I know there are showcases for licensing and for, for, for that, but obviously it's known for film. How did you end up there four years ago? What is the setting for your performances, and, and how has it really influenced your career?
6: Yeah, so actually the first time I performed there, um, it, it was because my whole career started out of uploading music online to this platform called Hit HitRecord, um, and they started a TV show called He'd Record on TV that was uh, premiering at Sundance that year. And I had been basically just uploading music online from my bedroom, not really thinking too much of it. Um, And yeah, the site was founded by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then he just calls me up and says that, hey, we want you to come to perform. Um,
1: Classic yeah, it's, JGL just, call, phone exactly. call. Exactly,
6: yeah. it just happens. It's the, that's the way to do it. Like, that's my tip to everybody: just yeah. get, that, get that phone call. No, but um, and then you're fine. And then you're fine. Yeah, are yeah. fine. Yeah. Then it's done. That's Did you get it. the call.
1: Get the call. Then you're fine. Exactly.
6: <laughs> but yeah, he, he called me up, and I flew to Sundance to perform at the premiere party because it was premiering there, and uh, and that's really what I, I was there just for two nights. It was a crazy trip. I performed just one song on on a piano, and my now manager and lawyer Stephen Beer happened to be in the audience and just gave afterwards and gave me his card and said that hey, like I like what you're doing. Let's see if we can collaborate. And then we just started talking over email and we skyped. And he said that you know if you want, I can help you. You know network in New York. I can help you, you know, set you up with a team, and we can. Make your first EP here, if that's what you want. So that was really just the first step, the first step that brought me to US, New York specifically, and, and yeah. And then the year after that, Stephen is also hosting a New York Lounge at the Sundance Film Festival. So I came there and I was performing just five nights in a row at his event, and uh, and this one person, Maury Levovitz, happened to be in the audience, who later on became my sponsor who later on became uh the founder and owner of my now label honey rose records um and then the year after that i was there again and this time that was the craziest one i was the first person ever to open for the new music venue bass camp um i was performing at multiple venues there and parties and yeah with sundance Because it all happens in such a small space. It's like, you just never know who you're going to meet there.
4: Mm.
6: It's really friendly and really great. And I've I've always just met the really key people to my career there.
1: The interesting thing about Honey Rose Records, which is your label, is that it is from Park City and it is all about getting artists who play Park City or Sundance and getting them on a a record label, which is such a unique response to all the musicians that come to town during that time.
6: Well, that's the thing. like Sundance and Park City, it's just... It has a very specific vibe, it's just so welcoming, and you really don't know, like, whoever could be walking, you know, on the street, whoever could come to your show. And it's like, the audiences are not big in numbers, but they're, like, big in who is there.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's uh, quality, not quantity. Yes. Can we hear another song?
6: Yes. For sure.
1: What are you going to play for us?
6: Uh, This one is called What Does It Take, also from the EP.
3: For us to see we way across the line What does it take To make it clear we don't know how to turn back time What can I say You keep on feeding me the same old lies What does it take you to stop pretending that your hands are tied you say that we are done that it's already gone but i need to know if i'm the only one if i'm the only one who says it can be so oh
1: EP out this past Friday. Congratulations. Thank you. What was the process into this record? It's very evolved sound. It's a a lot of growth from the last one. What what changed from the previous EPs upon making this one?
6: So one big thing that changed that was that I actually knew what I was getting into because I had never, well, (laughs) because I had never produced or like been a part of producing anything before uh, when i was making my first EP, i i had just written songs in my bedroom and then recorded them like guitar vocals so i didn't really know what it meant to build a production but getting into this one i was really heavily involved like every and we really layered it out like I, i was working with the producer charles newman and we really laid it out like one layer by layer like went through like the melodies and the you know, sounds together, and I really was able to leave my mark to it, like, all the way through. Um, another thing was that this time, I was maybe... I was maybe less trying to please everyone. Like, you know, I, I, with, the, with the first record... I, I, by the way, I'm really proud of that record, and I love it. But with the lyrics of it, I was kind of, like, softer on the edges. Like, I had messages, but I was trying to put them through in a way that everybody would approve and everybody would be happy with. And I'm still like, I'm still not like doing anything too revolutionary. Like, I'm not upsetting anybody, but I really, I really had strong visions of what I want to tell people. And I wasn't thinking too much of like the way of saying it. So it was all much clearer in my head.
1: What's one of the messages that you really feel came across in this EP?
6: I think... Is one of the big ones. It's like just dare to be strong and dare to be powerful and like find that strength in you. And being strong and being powerful doesn't mean that you have to like uh, shout it out or like be just a jerk about it. Like being strong is also being able to show that you're weak and just kind of like the different, different sides of being strong. And it's just so important to me especially knowing that my audience is probably more on the younger side probably more you know speaks to a lot of women and i just always think like what would i want to tell myself when i when i was 13 or what would i want to tell my 10 year old cousin like what are the things that i really want to want them to know and one thing is that you can be strong and you can be loud and you can do whatever you want
1: also give up the flute take up the piano
6: (laughs) yes no the flute was really good and you're going to be really really happy one day that you did take those 11 years of learning it
1: (laughs) one of the coolest songs or inspirations against the grain is about uh, female comic book writers
6: yes which is really awesome no i actually i saw this amazing documentary called she makes comics um, and I kind of knew that they were looking for you know ending title song. And I was just so inspired. It was just this I, I love comics. I love that that whole world like i'm
1: <laughs> what do you, what do you read?
6: Um, I know all these names in Finnish, so that's
1: fine. call it out.
6: Yeah. yeah, I like Lassie and Levy, which is like the little little boy and the uh, tiger toy. I don't know. And oh, Calvin uh, and Hobbes. Yes, Calvin and Hobbes.
1: Okay, I can translate for you. Yes.
6: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I. really. I loved comics, and um. Uh, and I did like growing up. In my family, I never felt that it was like was not a girl thing to do, mm-hmm. but. I did feel really awkward entering a comic store or, you know, just like talking about it to anyone other than my brother, because it, it did feel like I don't know about it enough that it's OK to like it. Mm-hmm.
1: And you also do you draw as well.
6: I do. Yeah. And
1: what type of drawings you do and how does that tie into it?
6: Oh well, one hundred percent ties into it. I actually, like drawing has always been one of my big passions. Um, I I also read manga a lot as a as a teenager, as a lot of us do, and uh, I drew that for a while, and then I just kind of turned more into the exactly like Calvin and Hobbes type of like comic strip type of drawing, where you can just kind of like exaggerate certain parts of the body to like ex- express the emotion that you want. I really love that kind of really simplistic drawing. Um, yeah, I love that.
1: Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Where can people find the EP, find out where you're playing? Do you have any upcoming... I know you had a release party this past weekend, but any yeah. future coming upcoming shows?
6: Uh, we don't have any dates confirmed yet, but you should definitely go to my website, pepinamusic.com, to find out any future dates. And the EP Spark is available on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and Amazon and wherever you... Where, pick your poison, like whichever you want to consume.
1: Well, thank you for coming on.
6: Thank you so much for having me here.
1: Big shout out to Chef Piatoni for coming by. Uh, make sure to check out Meta. We are going to be off next week because David the Engineer says no shows on July 4th weekend. So <laughs> we <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'll be back in a couple weeks um, and we'll be doing a whole new episode of Snacky Tunes. What's the name of the song you're going to take us out with?
6: I'm going to take us out with Fire.
1: Perfect. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.